All right, amen. You may be seated. Welcome to Mercy Fellowship, where we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And so typically um, our regular rhythm is to preach right through books of the Bible. And actually a couple weeks after Easter, we'll launch a new series called Abide, uh, Life in Christ, Life with Christ, uh, out of the book of First John. And that'll carry us in through the summer. But, um, but today, uh, today is a, a unique Sunday in the historic church calendar called Palm Sunday. And it's the beginning uh, of what we as Christians call Holy Week, where we are looking at intentionally the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry leading up to his death on the cross on Friday and his resurrection on Easter Sunday. And so, uh, like, we've actually, I believe, been given a gift in having a historic church calendar, in having a week where today we just think about the fact that Jesus Christ the King arrives into Jerusalem, uh, going into an incredibly uh, uh, challenging uh, and amazing week of, of ministry. And we're given this gift because the week that we've just been through and the seasons that we've been through or are still enduring are so painful and chaotic that hope can seem distant. When you wake up on a Tuesday and, and, and you're navigating your week and, and your, your wife sends you a text that there's been a, another school shooting, this time at a Christian school where a, a pastor's daughter was killed. Not that that makes it any more or less special than anyone else, but it just, it just hits different. And as the week goes on and, and you, you know that it's around an, an ideology that doesn't, doesn't lead to flourishing and life, but leads to confusion and destruction. And, and then all of the political unrest that comes with that and, and a media environment that tries to stir us up to, to more fear and more division. And then, and then we end the week with just like, hey, why don't we indict a former president just for funsies? Now, I know there's more to it than that, okay? And then we're not even talking about China and Russia now being like big friends now, saying, hey, we're going to reset the world order. And like, like, there's a lot of things that are unsettling. And then your, your friend gets news from their doctor that their, their numbers when it comes to cancer isn't, is, isn't going in the right direction. We need hope to show up. Like the city of Jerusalem a couple thousand years ago, our city, our lives, our church, our souls are in places of turmoil, places of concern, places of fear, places of longing. And we don't need a distant king that's checked out, that doesn't care. And we don't need a better political ideology to, to, to take over, to restructure society. And we don't need a, a new geopolitical world order. We need to be settled in our souls, in our hearts. We need to have the world reoriented. It's currently upside down, but right side up, where we worship our creator who made us where the sin that separates us in our own souls, in our own hearts, in our society, in our culture, that's tearing us apart, that that gets dealt with in a way that leads to reconciliation, that leads to restoration, that leads to true and lasting peace. We need the king to show up. And in Jesus Christ, he does. And so Palm Sunday is a day where we remember and we, we lament and we anticipate, yes, the turmoil that's happening, but the arrival of the king who shows up in Jesus. They were reminded that God is not distant, but he is present with us. And so, man, that's, I didn't even, I don't even know what my notes say on the intro. I think that's the intro.
Jerusalem 2,000 years ago found themselves in oppression. They found themselves under Roman rule. Um, They were not um, a prosperous nation at this time. They were not a safe nation. They had a ton of political corruption. They had a ton of religious corruption. Their political leaders uh, were sexually promiscuous and corrupt. And then they're not even like the ones really in charge. They're just puppets. We know that, that Rome is the one that's really in charge. And in this backdrop, you've got thousands of people from all over the known world coming to Jerusalem to celebrate a festival called Passover. And it was, it was God's people, it was, it was the nation of Israel being reminded that as bad as things were then, they, they actually were worse before when they were enslaved in Egypt. And God with a mighty hand brought them out by breaking the systemic gods of idolatry of the world's superpower at that time, which was Egypt, and said, hey, hey, my, my, the last thing I'm going to do is I'm going to sacrifice the firstborn son from every family. And if you want to be spared from having to deal with that, you're going to take the blood of a lamb uh, as you signify that sacrifice. And the blood of the lamb is going to cover the door and the angel of death will pass over your family. You will be saved. You will be delivered. And then with a mighty hand, I will lead you out of slavery so that you can worship me. And you might go from slavery to wilderness, but my promise to you is a promised land. And now they find themselves in that promised land, and yet things just don't feel right because Rome is in charge, because they're not in a place of flourishing, because Israel themselves hadn't remained faithful, but God had remained faithful to them. And so this city's filling up with people, all there to celebrate, yes, but also to agitate. There was a diverse set of political parties and religious groups, all with their vision of flourishing and how they're going to finally get back to their place of prosperity. It's not paradise. It's not peace. Disorder, discrimination, discord, they're all reigning. The city needs a savior. They need a king, and he's coming, and he's here in Jesus. So that leads us to to Luke chapter 19, where we're going to spend most of our time today. It'll be up on the screen. It'll be, um, you can look there in your Bible, Luke 19. We're going to be in verses 28 through 48 today, looking at the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem, him weeping over Jerusalem, and then ultimately him turning over some tables uh, of oppression to lead to greater worship. Um, I'm going to read verses 28 uh, through 40, and we'll talk about it. And when he'd said these things, He went on ahead going to Jerusalem. He drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. And he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you're going to find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, a whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And so here's Jesus' arrival on to the scene. The king is coming into Jerusalem. The whole city is anticipating revolution. They're anticipating freedom. They're anticipating a return to prosperity. And, and here he comes in on this procession, and, and, he's, and he's riding this small little donkey. Like it doesn't look like victory, it looks like humiliation. And there's, there's several things I want us to draw from this today. 
Number one, Jesus arrives prepared. Jesus arrives prepared. That Jesus doesn't guess at anything. Jesus has great clarity and certainty. Jesus, he, like, he knows all of the circumstances that are going on. And he's actively orchestrating them for his glory and for our joy. So he knows that there's a young donkey tied up in the village. He knows his disciples will find it. He knows someone might care that they're untying the young donkey and taking it. He gives his disciples some instructions on how they should respond and that it's all gonna work out. And, and I don't know how Jesus knew that. He could have used his I am God superpowers or maybe he just, he's got disciples everywhere. But like, like Jesus arrives and when Jesus arrives, he does so prepared. Like we can know that our God is prepared for any circumstance and contingency we might find ourselves in. And so the role of a Christian disciple in that resting and knowing that Jesus is prepared is to simply honor and obey Jesus. Like I can imagine the disciples had a lot of questions around the donkey thing. And like, hey, does Carl know we're taking the donkey? Jesus like, yeah, just tell him it's fine, right? Like they could have had some questions, and but like, even though they didn't fully understand everything that was going on, we said it last week, they took the next best step and followed and obeyed Jesus. And so in these specific instructions, he gets the young donkey and, and he starts to ride in from the village on the city uh, and he's clearly laid out some groundwork. And so when God arrives, we should, we should have a disposition ready to listen and respond. Even and especially when we might not understand everything that God's doing. Number two, number one was Jesus arrives prepared. Number two, Jesus arrives in humility. I, I mean, he's riding in on a donkey. That sounds kind of weird enough. And then when you find out it's a colt, like it's a small donkey, like, like the scene of Jesus coming in isn't anything triumphant. I mean, it's way more like Harry and Lloyd and Dumb and Dumber with like their little scooter going across Nebraska, for, right? We, we know this. Okay, now y'all have homework, right? Watch Dumb and Dumber this week. Um, whatever. But like, that's the scene. Like it does, it looks a like it is, it is evoking not triumph, but humiliation. And, and humility, I mean, that characterized all of Jesus' uh, life. I mean, from the very the initial advent of him showing up, right? He's born in, you know, in a barn, right? Laid in a manger, poor, marginalized family, right? Worked in obscurity for years and years. Jesus arrives in humility, and part of why Jesus arrives in humility, because we believe he's the son of God, is because for God to engage with us, God who's good and glorious, us who have sin and brokenness, and I mean, at best, we're just trying to find our way, and at most, are spiritually blind, groping in the dark. God has to come down to us. God humbles himself to engage with us, so that hope can come to where it's most needed. So when Jesus arrives, he arrives in humility. When God meets us, he meets us where we're at. He, yeah, he'll, he'll lead us to glory. Your, your destination, if you're in Christ, is a future forever city in glory. But know this, you don't need to, and you should not glorify yourself thinking somehow that will get you closer to God. No, we, we worship a God who humbled himself to come and meet us where we're at, to lead us to where he wants us to go. Number three, Jesus arrives with great intentionality. Jesus arrives in intentionality. Um, as, as you hopefully spend some time in God's word this week and you think through, um, well, you know, this is Palm Sunday and then what does Monday look like and Tuesday, Wednesday, all, all of the days of the week and you, you're reading about what Jesus' ministry looked like at that time and his interactions with political leaders and religious leaders and sinners and saints and everything in between, like understand that Holy Week is not a week where we remember some horrible, unforeseen tragedy 
of a great teacher or religious leader being martyred. That, oh man, right? Like, like, I don't have a lot of analogies, so I'm going back to the one I always use. Like you start the movie Titanic, right? Nobody's like, hey, I wonder if they make it. Right, like, I wonder, it just seems like a nice movie about a boat ride. Like, you know, we're like, oh man, like the comedy of errors that led up to like, oh man, they weren't watching and they went too fast and all these different things, right? Like, like, no, 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 no. The cross wasn't an accident. Yes, man meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so everything that Jesus does that week is not an accident. It is incredibly intentional. It's not an accidental tragedy. It's, it's planned. And so it's, a, it's an orchestrated arrival. So when Jesus comes in on a donkey, he's not just like, well, I, I, I kind of want to make a statement or a scene. Well, he does want to make a statement. But what he's doing is he's tying himself to historic prophecies made about who the Messiah, the Savior King of God's people is going to be. So hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, it says this. Talking about the coming King of the city of God's people, in verses 9 and 10 of Zechariah 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, right? That's the city of God. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. He's humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Next verse. What's he going to do? I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. This is the imagery that Jesus is intentionally invoking. He's saying, you want to know all of the Old Testament and what it's looking for in that day of salvation and that great king that's coming? He says, I am he. And so this imagery is incredibly important. And, and, and uh, he, so that leads us to number four. Jesus arrives as the Savior King. So Jesus has had done miracles. He's done teachings. He's fed 5,000 people. He's walked on water. A couple days earlier, he rose his buddy Lazarus from the grave. But don't mistake somehow that Jesus is just a great teacher or just some religious leader. No, he's saying, I am the savior king of God's people. And then verse 10 in Zechariah tells us, to all the nations. And so yeah, he comes in humility, but his word of peace is because he is the king over all. He can speak peace, and he could say, the chariot, that's, again, like, think like tanks, right? Battle bows, right? Like artillery. He's saying, no, that's all going to end. Not because a peace treaty signed or uh, legislation's passed. That doesn't change hearts. No, it, it's going to be changed because he is the king who rules from sea to sea. So you don't have to worry about who's in charge anymore because Jesus is in charge. So that's the word of peace, not just the absence of hostility, but the fullness and wholeness of the presence of God, again, dwelling with his people. So for the religious leaders who are watching this, there's, there's scribes and Pharisees. There's, there's guys that years and years of seminary, years and years of Bible study, years and years of, of, of all the readings. They got all the rules down. And they've heard about Jesus, and they know he's coming to town. They're the ones who are currently in charge-ish. We all know Rome's in charge. And, and, and they're hearing news. Hey, Jesus is coming to town. Oh, man, not again. He's been to town a few times. Every time it's been a little disruptive. He's been to the temple a few times. It's been a little disruptive. And they're like, oh, can we get through one Passover week without this Jesus guy again? Where's he coming from? Oh, he's, he's coming from the um, he's coming coming from the uh, the northeast. He's coming in from Bethany and Bethpage. Um, yeah, hey, weird thing. 
He's riding in on a donkey. Oh, yeah, yeah, we heard his mom and dad showed up um, to Bethlehem on a donkey. Maybe, maybe he's just using the family car. I don't know. Right? Like, yeah, well, I mean, it's like a really small donkey. It's like a colt. See, I mean, these guys, I mean, their lives was studying the Old Testament. They knew Zechariah 9 like the back of their hand. And they're like, oh, he's saying he's the son of God. He's saying he's the, the savior, king of God's people. This wasn't, again, by accident. And so when it says he shows up, it says he's going to be the king. He shall rule from sea to sea, speaking peace not just to the people of God, but to the nations. So Jesus is like doubling down on the claim of being Savior King, not just of God's people, but the God's people won't just be the nation of Israel, but God's people will be among all the nations. And so like you would think as a good Pharisee, right, that they would They'd be like, let's go. Let's go see Jesus. We've been waiting for this. Like, like why aren't they more excited? Why aren't they on board? At least this to number five. Jesus arrives to fulfill God's expectations for peace, not meet ours for victory. Jesus arrives to fulfill God's expectations for peace, not to meet ours for victory. See, we already have expectations, and they have expectations of what that king showing up looks like. And I said, there's a bunch of different political parties there in Jerusalem at that point. There was a bunch of different political parties within Jesus' disciples. And they all had competing visions for human flourishing. And so each one of them had assumed that when the Messiah shows up, that it will lead to their ascendancy. It will lead to them being in charge. It will lead to them having more power. And so like the crowd that's all cheering, like, like I'll just, let's be honest, they're very patriotic. They were very patriotic uh, uh, Israelites. And the reason we know this is if you read the other accounts of Jesus' arrival, it says that they came in like waving palm branches. And you're like, are they, are they just fanning him? Like, what's, what's that all about? What do we call it? Palm Sunday? Well, that's, that's why we call it Palm Sunday, because the procession on the way in, they're waving all these palm branches. And you're like, well, that sounds like a nice scene. Well, the context is that 150 years earlier, this guy, Judas Maccabeus, he had led like this, this military style um, kind of revolution to like clean out Jerusalem, to like, to like, you know, like there's a, you know, really like restore, if you will, Jerusalem back to like its original kind of rule uh, and, and it enjoyed some success. He had some, actually some great military success. And, and they celebrated that time with palm branches, and it became a national symbol for patriotic victory because um, Judas Maccabeus, he had the palm uh, branches stamped on every coin, so it was on the money. So when Jesus is rolling in on the donkey that says, hey, I'm the savior, king of God's people, they're all like waving like either big Trump flags or trans flags, whatever team you're on. They're waving those. And see, for us, we're like, well, why would we celebrate that? Well, because we're on the other side of it now. So we realized that it wasn't about their agendas being risen, but it was about God bringing peace in a completely different way. See, Jesus isn't coming to wage a war and win a battle of bloodshed. He's coming to bear defeat. He takes that defeat on the cross. The, like many of them are planning, this is gonna be the violent revolution that finally kicks out Rome and reestablishes us as a great national superpower. Except that the only bloodshed that week is gonna be Jesus. It's very different than the way the world works, right? We all have a lot of expectations for what it looks like for God to arrive in our circumstances. We want strength. We want victory. And man, the, the Romans, they really valued that. 
And so the, the Romans, they, they knew that this was a very politically charged time uh, with Passover going on. They knew that they knew that there'd been a revolution 150 years earlier. They study their history, right? Uh, and so they're like, hey, what, what if this Jesus guy is like that? And so as Jesus is rolling in from the northeast in his little procession with the palm branches and laying down the cloaks on the donkey and everything, around the same time, from a military garrison miles and miles away, Pontius Pilate is rolling in, but he's not coming in with, with like a little, little donkey. He's coming in on a white horse that signifies victory's already happened. He's coming in in a great Roman procession. They're holding up the, the standards, right? We've all seen this in Gladiator, right? What it looks like, all of the centurions marching in. You can hear, like the sound of the war horses coming into town because we're going to establish law and order in this place. Like the juxtaposition between these two processions on Palm Sunday couldn't be greater. One, the world's power. The other, the power of God. Where he says the chariots are going to be gone. The battle bows will be broken. The guns, the tanks... All that will be gone. As Jesus draws closer to the city, the crowds glow, grow, and, and, and some of them are faithful followers, some of them are just fans, and, and as, they, as they cry out, again, other um, accounts talk about them crying out, Hosanna, which just means save now. Save us now. Everyone that is crying out, Hosanna, they understand the brokenness of the world they find themselves in. They want deliverance from it. And it's arriving in Jesus. But they expect the path ahead with God's favor and presence to be immediate peace, immediate comfort, immediate victory, affluence and affluence. Except that the path ahead for God's people is not going to be easy victory, but rather enduring suffering. See, like a lot of us, the people crying out Hosanna, they want the kingdom without the king. I think a lot of us want the kingdom, but we don't care that much about the king, right? We praise Jesus for what he does, but not for who he is. So we like the miracles, we like the healings, we like the feedings, uh, all of that, right? We like the idea if Jesus could lead some big military deal, that would be awesome, right? I mean, Rome's here, Rome is clearly, like, they're not a godly nation. Like, this can't be God's plan to have us being ruled by Rome, can it? Right? They want Jesus to kick out Rome. Uh, and so uh, they, they want to, they're tired of, of not having influence, of being poor, of being insignificant. And see, most of us are the same way. We don't want our hearts to change, we just want our circumstances to change. And so we like how Jesus can help us, but not how Jesus can heal us forever. And so I think what happens is our souls, we want too little. See, we're called to receive Jesus for who he is, not for who we think he should be. See, I, I, I'm really, really clear. Jesus is not an add-on to your political agenda. Jesus is the embodiment of God's agenda for the whole universe. So whether you're a patriot or progressive, quit pouring Jesus sauce on it. And let's get our hearts aligned to who our true Savior and King is. See, the crowds, they're excited. But it's not enough just to have passion and enthusiasm. It needs to be directed in the right ways. And so I gotta be clear, Jesus has a political platform. He says, repent, right? Turn our hearts from sin. He says, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus embodies the kingdom of heaven because Jesus is the king of heaven. And so Jesus like he actually has an incredibly politically revolutionary platform to pledge allegiance to his kingdom. But it's not built on violent rebellion, but on voluntary 
repentance that leads to restoration of relationships, that leads to having our hearts aligned with who Jesus is. See, see, Jesus doesn't show up to overthrow Caesar on his throne in Rome. Jesus shows up to overthrow the kings and queens that we have placed on our hearts. To say, I have the authority over that. He wants to reign in the lives of his people. And so I just think it's so important for us to not try to be half right about Jesus. To quote scripture out of context, to try to, to make it align with all of our political priorities. See, Jesus is not less than they expect or less than we expect. He's more. He transforms people and he continues to do that. And so I just want you to ask yourself, like, who do you think Jesus is? How, how has he changed you so that you can serve his agenda? Not using Jesus to try to advance your own. That leads us to number six. Jesus' arrival is uncontrollable, uncontainable, and undeniable. Jesus' arrival is uncontrollable, uncontainable, and undeniable. See, while maybe the patriotic folks, they kind of misunderstood what Jesus was doing because Jesus was not going to lead an armed rebellion. Like I said, the Pharisees, they totally knew what Jesus was doing. And so at the closing of these verses, right, they come up to him and they're like, hey, Jesus, we hear everybody saying, you're the king, you're the savior king, you're the Messiah. Jesus, teacher, could you tell your students to dial it down a bit? Leader, healer, could you just not, they're really trying to say you're a big deal. Could you just kind of try to, I mean, I mean, let them know you're not the way, the truth, and the life. Let them know that you're not the path to the Father. Let them know that you're not the King. And what's interesting, right? Jesus doesn't like come and build consensus and is like, oh gosh, you're right. Let me just kind of tone down my message a little bit. I'm so sorry. Did I, did I offend you? Did I, did I upset maybe what, what you, the way you think that the world works or, or, or what your current authority is? I'm so sorry. No, no, Jesus just doubles down. He says, oh, yeah, I mean, they could all be quiet. But if they, if they do, the very rocks that we're on will cry out that I am the King of kings and Lord of lords. See, Jesus knows his Bible too, right? Because he, like the Holy Spirit, right, inspired it. It's like his words, right? See, there's this verse in Habakkuk that talks about the same thing, Old Testament prophet. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, oh, yeah, I'm not just the King of Israel. He's saying, I am the I am who created everything. I'm, I am the ruler of your heart. I am the ruler of God's people. I'm also the ruler of the universe. I command all of the cells that make up these stones. And if my people are silent, the very creation itself will scream out, he's the creator. He is God. He's the Savior King. And what's amazing is that God still does that. God actually does make stones cry out that he's the Savior King. See, Ezekiel, another Old Testament prophet, he says that when, when God shows up, he removes from us hearts of stone. Hearts that don't recognize him as God. Hearts that aren't soft to repentance. Hearts that don't forgive. Hearts that don't reconcile. Hearts that, 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 that hold on to ourselves as kings and queens. And he takes those hearts of stone and he takes them out and he replaces them with a heart of flesh. He says that beats with the spirit of God. That cries out the truth about who God is. Through the Holy Spirit, God miraculously makes stones cry out that he's the savior king of his people. Like if there's anything in you that believes that Jesus Christ is the son of God and is worthy of worship, that is a miracle of the Holy Spirit that God has performed a heart surgery and he, he made a stone 
cry out, save us now. Save us now. Oh God, you do save in Jesus. You save in Jesus. So if you praise Jesus, follow him, love him, or serve him, that is an act of God's grace that God can and does make very stones cry out. So maybe you have a friend or maybe you have a family member, you have somebody that you're praying for and you just, you hope that they love and serve Jesus. You hope something happens in their life but they just seem like a heart of stone. You talk about Jesus and it just glazes over. You try to talk about the truth of God and how he's made the world and they just, mm. Keep praying. Keep hoping. That if and when Jesus arrives in their hearts, he will make those stones cry out. Our God is a God who makes stones cry out. All right, next verses. 41 to 40 says this. Back in Luke chapter 19, 41 to 40. The procession's going on. It says, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and, and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in your city because you did not know the time of your visitation. Number seven, Jesus arrives with empathy, grief over the brokenness of our sin. Jesus arrives with empathy and grief over the brokenness of our sin. See, our God is not impersonal. Right? Sometimes we get this really weird view of Jesus, like he's completely unemotional. And certainly like, like as a church and as Christians, like when we talk about emotions, then we do weird things like say, hey, you should never ever listen to him or you should only listen to him. Like Jesus Christ is an embodied soul. And like, like he has emotions. Our God has emotions. He cares about the condition of our hearts. He cares about the condition of our culture and our cities and our nation and our country. And when he sees that they're overrun with sin, when he sees that they're under great oppression of, uh, of division, of perversion, like it just, corruption, like it just makes his heart break. Because he's like, no, 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 my, like, like the destination is a forever city that has no corruption, no sin, no brokenness, no death. And because it's not that, because he's, he's, he's with Jerusalem, he's there, he sees the city, and he's moved to, to weeping, in part because he's like, well, like, like, why is he weeping? I mean, all the people are celebrating. Well, not all of them. He knows that some of them are only celebrating him because of who they think he is. They know that this week begins with, save us now, save us now, save us now. But he knows that the week ends with crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. He's like this, 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 this tight week is a closing window of grace that it's like their, their hope is in some great victory. Their hope is in overthrowing Rome. And he's like, I just, I mean, Jesus, he, he, he knows all of history. He knows all the future, everything in between. He knows that about 30 to 40 years later, Rome shows up and destroys Jerusalem. The city actually is encircled, that it describes it sometimes in the Old Testament as the abomination of desolation, that their hope is in some sort of cultural renewal and not in the risen Christ. And so he weeps because of their enthusiasm, yes, that, that there's so many that understand what's going on, and so, so there's a sense of urgency that he has that, 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 the, that the people are actually rejecting God in their midst. It's because of lack of humility. See, I mean, Jesus weeps over the city, but just a few days earlier, he's, 
It says Jesus wept and he's, he's weeping with those who are grieving. Like where you've suffered pain and trauma and been sinned against, it's led you to tears. Know that in the Holy Spirit, like Jesus is weeping with you. Salvation's come in Christ. But Jesus says, woe is coming as well. The difference is either pride or humility. Either rejecting Jesus or receiving Jesus. It's a hard word, but if we want to be a people that Jesus weeps with and not over, it's going to require humility. It's going to require humility to realize how much we are in need of God's mercy for our sin, how much we're in need of God's grace, forgiveness, renewal, restoration, that we are incredibly needy people. We need soft hearts that are humble, not hard hearts that are prideful. Um, Last verses and then we'll close. Um, we're actually shifting here over to, this was Sunday, we're shifting to Monday. Um, just a, a quick note, if you do, uh, every day this week on social media, we're gonna share out just a different slide of what was happening around the ministry of Jesus during that day. So at 6 a.m. a post will go out and it'll, it'll let you know, hey, it's Holy Monday, hey, it's Monday, Thursday. Uh, and it'll just have some scripture. And I'll have a, a few sentences of reflection around that that we can hopefully start our days uh, each day this week anticipating and reorienting our hearts around what God is trying to do in and through and for us this week, this, this holy set-apart week. So all that we've been reading has been Sunday, and this, is, this transitions to Monday here. It says this in verse 45. And he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written... My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Number eight, Jesus' arrival disrupts what keeps us from communion with God. This is good news, not bad news. Jesus' arrival disrupts what keeps us from communion with God. I think it's amazing that on the first day of the week, after everybody's saying this is the violent rebellion that's coming, Jesus doesn't go into Pilate's office and say, hey, by the way, I'm the king. No, Jesus enters into the temple, and what he finds is not pure worship. What he finds is all these money changers who, as people are coming in with different languages and races and all these different nations, they're coming in and they're having their currency changed in the temple. And like, I mean, it's like payday loan, usury rates of interest so that people can then buy their sacrifices for the temple so they can somehow be closer to God. So people who are desperately seeking communion with God, like, like confession of sin, forgiveness, all of these things, what they find instead is ethnic and systemic oppression. And Jesus comes in and says, no, no, this is where all people from all nations are supposed to come in and commune with God. And so he drives away all of the idolatry, all of the greed, all of the racism, like everything that keeps people from communing with one another and with God. When hope arrives, we see that the people have responded in a bunch of different ways. And now this is Jesus' turn to respond to what he sees. And he says, no, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. Um, other accounts talk about it being a place of healing. So when Jesus arrives, his disruption, right? It's not Antifa style, like let's just break some windows just because we're mad. No, it's a disruption to reestablish prayer, healing, wholeness, communion with God. See, 
Jesus, when he shows up, he restores and he renews. This is part of his purpose. He arrives into our places of idolatry. He arrives into where our sin is in our hearts. And he turns them upside down to reorient us to a place of prayer and worship. See, like I said, this, this temple was intended to bring God glory and life and flourishing for the people. You, me, us, our existence is intended to bring God glory and to bring us flourishing and, and, and joyful life. And so Jesus enters into the temples of our hearts and our bodies and he overturns and kicks out what keeps us from communion with God. What leads us to repentance. What leads us to faithfulness. What leads us to walk out newness of life. When Jesus arrives, he retakes ownership of the temple because it's his. And when Jesus arrives, he retakes ownership of you because you are his. And he says, let me get to work. Reorienting, renewing, reshaping your heart, your soul, to be a place of communion, a place of peace. So I want you to ask yourself, where does Jesus need to come in and overturn the tables of your sin so that you can repent and experience freedom and flourishing, having new life and healing and peace with Jesus? See, Jesus still had opponents that week. His opponents, man, they didn't, they didn't like what Jesus was doing. They rejected the change that Jesus brings because, I mean, they're like, oh man, he's going to upset Rome. Like things are going to get rough around here. And so, so their answer to Jesus' work of bringing peace and healing and restoration was we got to get rid of that guy because they cared like some of us more about being the king, more about being in charge than, than loving and submitting to the one who is. And so the best they could do, their answer for Jesus' death. And that led to that, that Friday on the cross. See, the cross was evil and death's best move. It, 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 it's, it's the big guns. It's all they had. They had the cross. And on that cross, on, on Good Friday, we, we're going to gather together at 7 o'clock and we're going to look at, uh, at what was happening at that time. But it's on that cross where the world plotted defeat. But God knew it was actually victory. And when we take communion, we remember that Jesus' body was broken for us on the cross. His blood was shed for us on the cross. And it was that sacrifice that brought the restoration, that paid for our sin, that separated, rather took out the separation between us and God and restored and reconciled that, that relationship with him. See, they thought Jesus was taking defeat on the cross, but it's victory because, because the next Sunday he actually resurrects, showing that he is the God over all creation, that he has conquered Satan, sin, and death. And so, if you're a Christian, we invite you to come forward here in a moment to take communion and remember what Jesus has already done for you. That Jesus cleans out a place for himself and makes a place of space and rest and healing. That he doesn't stay silent. That he continues to bring life change in and through his people. There's a reason that 2,000 years later, we're still listening to his words. There was people in that day hanging on his every word. It was on that Friday that the word of God was hung on the cross so that we could have life with him, that Jesus drives out what keeps us from God so that we could, could be part of his forever family. And no politicians and, and no religious legalists, no patriots or progressives 
can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. See, you can't stop Jesus. You can't defeat Jesus. If the cross was the world's best bet, and it didn't work, the best bet for you, the best bet for all of us, is to simply surrender. To surrender that he is the king. To humble yourself. To repent of your sins. And know that that surrender doesn't lead you to shame. That surrender actually leads you into honor as you're brought in to a glorious forever family of people who hang on every word of Jesus. We can have light and life and live by his words as we continue to trust Jesus. Let's pray. God, you're good to to us and you're good for us. Jesus, this this has been a heavy week. And we don't know what the week to come has, but you do. Lord, I don't know the condition of the people's hearts here, but you do. God, you know every circumstance that we're dealing with, everything that we will deal with. And so, God, in Jesus, we're so thankful that you've arrived. So thankful that with you there is hope. So thankful that with you there's intentionality. We're so thankful that you are the Savior King of your people. We're so thankful, God, that you cause disruption. It doesn't lead to more discourse, but brings peace in our souls and beyond. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would, maybe even at this moment, take a heart of stone and make it cry out as a heart of flesh that you are the Lord. Holy Spirit, fill us, renew us, change us, and shape us. Bring us to greater places of humility, not to humiliation, but actually to honor. God, you're good to us, you're good for us, in Jesus' name. Amen.